good leaders really center the person and the relationship before the business. And so often, you know, our leadership can be oriented around earning, around vanity metrics, how many likes you have, how many, you know, and these are things that really, at the end of the day, don't really matter to your sense of your true sense of well-being and impact. So that's that to me, those are key values, um, really centering people and their and centering the needs of people, of individuals, and relationships as really key components for successful leadership, in my opinion, across any domain. All right. I am here today with Rue Map. I'm so excited. Rue is the founder and CEO of Outdoor Afro, the nation's leading network that celebrates and inspires African-American connections and leadership in nature. With 80 leaders in 30 states, they connect over 35,000 people to the outdoors. Rue is an awarded inspirational leader, writer, speaker, public lands champion, and self-proclaimed good cook. And I've seen your Instagram photos of your cooking, and I can attest that you are whipping up some really delicious looking (laughs) food. And just a little more about Outdoor Afro. From its grassroots beginning, Outdoor Afro is recognized by major organizations for its role in addressing the ongoing need for greater diversity in the outdoors. Rue's work for Outdoor Afro has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Seattle Times, Los Angeles Times, on Oprah, so cool, NPR, and many others. And Rue has a smile that lights up the room. I always look forward to seeing her, whether it's in Washington, D.C., on the trails or in the halls of the Outdoor Retailer Trade Show. So, Rue, welcome to the Caroline Gleig Show. Where are you chatting with me from today? Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, first off. And I am chatting with you from my dining room in sunny, multicultural Vallejo, California. Awesome. And how are you doing right now? We're in the midst of... COVID-19. And so I wanted to ask, check in and how you're, how you're doing with that. Well, thanks for asking. Um, I'm doing okay. I mean, this is definitely a new reality that we're all like learning about how to be in, in real time. And given that the work that I do is about connecting people to each other and to the outdoors, you know, I've been spending a lot of time, obviously thinking about how to continue to do that. And the, the thing that's really good about this time, because I think in moments like this, you have to focus on what's what's going right, um, is that you know we are, I feel, uh, in a in a heightened sense of connectivity um, with our community, and we've thankfully have always been in communication with our community digitally. We're born in social media back in 2009 when the algorithms were all nice and flat and, you know, it just, it wasn't a thing, you know, to be a social media anything. And so before that curve of engagement, we were able to build Outdoor Afro. And so in some ways it's, it's, it's a little nostalgic for us to, to return to our roots of connecting with people digitally. We know how to do that. We trained our first Outdoor Afro leaders via conference call, and uh, and we're actually going to do our annual training in a couple of weeks uh, using this platform, uh, the Zoom platform. So it's about remembering who we are. It's about maintaining those connections with people who are already engaged with us, and then it's also personally a time that I've been able to spend a lot more quality time with family. Um, and to your point about food, it's 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 nice to be so intentional about cooking. You know, when I travel so much, I, I don't have a chance to give it that much love and care and attention. And you can taste that difference of care and attention in your food. So so those are the things that I think are different and that I'm focusing on in these times. Absolutely. Yeah, I found it very grounding to have so much time to be home and to cook and to pick up these projects that I've been meaning to do, but I've been so neglected. And um One of the things I was going to say is with organizations with this pandemic, it's leadership is more important than ever. And that's something I've always admired about you is your strong leadership. So can you talk more about how you've learned how to become such a great leader and how you're steering your ship through this pandemic? 
Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question because I've been paying close attention to leadership myself. I I consider myself a lifelong uh, learner of leadership and of leaders who I feel are doing it well. And I've been really inspired by um, the ways that the governor of California, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, um, you know, very early was very decisive and really took into account you know, not only the science of the pandemic, but also has been very in touch with how people might be feeling and how people how people can have their emotional needs met um, in, in times like this. And so for me, you know, I lead every staff meeting with the question of how are you doing? You know, because if you're not okay or if there's something going on in your life, that is overwhelming or that might be affecting your health or sense of well-being like that needs to that needs attention first before we talk about the business of the day and i have been struck by how there are some people in this time frame you know who want to carry on as though business is as usual and it's not and and it matters just in the way that you open today to ask people like, how are you doing? Like, what's different about now? Because there is an answer there. Um, and, and I think that good leaders really center the person and the relationship before the business. And so often, you know, our leadership can be oriented around earning, um, around vanity metrics, how many likes you have, how many, um, you know, and these are things that really, at the end of the day, don't really matter um, to your sense of tr- your true sense of well-being and impact. Um, so that's that to me. Those are key values. Um, really centering people and their and centering the needs of people of individuals and relationships as really key components for successful leadership, in my opinion, across any domain. Wow, there's so much good stuff in there. And oh my gosh, I just love what you said about the vanity metrics with Instagram and stuff because so many days I'm just like, what is wrong with me? Like my engagement is going down the tubes. Like people aren't consuming what I'm creating. But like you said, it's really it's really important too that self-care aspect about it, about making sure that your leaders, the people you're checking in with, are doing okay on a personal level first before you get into the business because there's some days where I can stay really positive and get into projects, but with the pandemic and everything else going on, there's some days where I'm just not able to focus and having that compassion and self-awareness, I think is another thing I'm trying to really work on in my own self-leadership. So I really appreciate that you talked about those other metrics of measuring success beyond these vanity metrics of likes or followers or these other things. It's really um, prioritizing relationships. That's a beautiful sentiment. I wanted to ask you about some of your earliest memories of the outdoors and how you got into doing what you're doing. Well, you know, the outdoors was just a part of my life um, in an everyday way by by virtue of the fact that I was, you know, coming of age in the 70s and 80s when kids could go out and play. But I think what made my, my or play with more, you know, freedom, okay, um, I think is a better way to say that. Because, you know, we, there was an article I read years ago called My Square Mile and how kids could basically roam like a whole square mile away from their house by bike, by by. by roller skate by foot. And, you know, no one cared about that. I mean, that was just an expectation of childhood. That was your job to be out and play and play, you know, in a, in a distance that was easy enough to get back home from, um, but still pretty far away by today's standards. But the other thing um, that made my childhood unique is that my parents had a ranch up in Northern California in Lake County. And that ranch was uh, several acres of uh, English walnuts. And we had a farm with cows and pigs and we had um, a barn. And and my dad was an enthusiastic builder and built a swing set for me. And, um, you know, we hunted, we fished. 
Um, we, you know, grew a lot of vegetables. My dad made his own wine. I was just describing yesterday the process for making sausage and, and how my dad had built his own, um, his own smokehouse. So it was like this whole, like little house on the prairie <laughs> existence for me growing up. And, uh, we were one of very few black people who lived in this small town, um, part-time, but it really was the underpinning for me to understand the, the practicality of nature in your everyday life and to really develop that, which I call like your nature swagger, you know, like that, that, you know, that, that awareness of how to be, what to do, what you can eat, what what you can leave behind for poison, like just knowing nature in a way that just fits into how you just live your, your life. Um, and that's, that's something that always stayed with me. And then, you know, the piece that was also very important about that place was, was hospitality and how welcomed everyone was in that space and how we brought people from the church and we brought people from, you know, all these different corners of Oakland to that ranch over the years and the memories that were made. And, and that helped me to understand the importance of, of welcoming and awe that everyone needs to experience. And that's really the heartbeat of Outdoor Afro is welcoming everyone. And, you know, we're focused obviously, but, you know, Outdoor Afro is intentionally non-exclusive and that welcoming really, I think is so universally understood. And that's why, you know, we, we look the way we look and, and we have the supporters that we do because everybody can relate to feeling like they belong and the need for everyone to feel like they belong. It was really fun to hear you just describe your childhood memories growing up on the ranch because it it illustrates a lot about you, about this connection you have to nature and about that welcoming environment and the inclusivity that you're, this culture of inclusivity that you're creating in your work for Outdoor Afro. And what I loved about what you just described is just that nature swagger, because it seems like people put up all these, like, it seems so complicated nowadays to get into nature. Like you need all these things and you have to have all the right gear. But I feel like once you take that step, it's like, there's something just innate and natural. And like, we don't really need to learn it. We just need to remember that part of ourself that we've been sort of neglecting. Absolutely. And I think that that is so like, you're so spot on right there because we are nature, you know, like right now we're dealing with a lot of park closures necessarily because of social distancing requirements. And I have to remind people that you don't have to get in your car and drive someplace to be connected to nature, like that connection to nature starts with your, the awareness of your heartbeat, you know, the awareness of, of the, the water that makes up most of your body and how, how governed we are in the same way that, that tides are by the moon. And, you know, so like being aware of your, of who you are as nature and the representation of nature that is you know, in the house plant that you can take some time to get to know a little better right now, um, or the birds that are, you know, still doing their mating thing this time of year, right outside your window. You know, there's, so there's just, there's so much juiciness about nature that I really, you know, want people to know is absolutely at hand and not remote from who you already are, as you said. Yeah, I mean, and then I love that you brought up the example of just nurturing your house plants because for me, just going back to those really simple things has been really grounding and it's kept me really positive during this time. So how did you make the jump from growing up on the ranch to getting the idea for Outdoor Afro to where you are now? I mean, I'm sure that's like a long, but if you can give it to us in a nutshell, I know that that's probably like, uh, you could write a book about that and it would be an amazing best-selling book. But <laughs> if you can just give us the cliff notes, the shortened version, that would be great. Well, I think it really came down to, you know, Outdoor Afro presenting itself as an opportunity to be all the parts of who I am. It was like the summoning up of, of you know, my life growing up wild in nature, being an entrepreneur, even having a background, you know, uh, running a store 
um, having a clothing line, being a mom, being a Girl Scout, I mean, and loving technology. I was an early adopter of digital technology. I was coding when I was um, 11 years old. So like having this chance to like create a digital platform that was a conversation at the dawn of social media that then made it a national conversation um, was just a confluence of both opportunity and um, authenticity. And um, that, you know, when people ask me like, you know, I don't know how you work so hard or travel so much or, you know, do any number of things that look pretty intense, I think from the outside, my, my answer is that, you know, Outdoor Afro for the very first time in my life gives me a chance to be all of me. Like, I don't have to leave anything at the door. And I think as women, you know, we struggle with, I can't be too smart, you know, or I can't be, in my case, I can't be too black or I can't be, no one wants to really hear about your kids or, you know, or you can't like technology or nature. I mean, there are all these things we have to leave at the door in our professional lives sometimes. And Outdoor Afro allows me to bring all those things in and, and, and to be authentically, you know, who I am actually gives me back more than it takes away. Hmm. So at the end of my days, I'm not spent because I had to have all this energy to kind of keep out all of these other parts of myself that I think are not welcomed or interesting to, you know, a, an audience that, you know, I need to enroll in some way. And, and so it's life-giving. The work is absolutely life-giving because of the chance to be authentic and to have friendships with people like you. And, you know, this is, this is you know, this work is a love story, truly. Oh, I love that so much. Well, it's really exciting when you can find something that lets you express all these different aspects of yourself, because for so much of my life, I was fed this story that women are only allowed to be one dimensional, like all the Hollywood figures, characters, they are very one dimensional. And so I grew up thinking like, I, you can't be sexy and smart, or I can't be pretty and a talented mountaineer, or I can't wear makeup and still succeed in the mountain or whatever it is. There's all these things we felt we had that we've, and I still feel that. And I'm trying to unlearn that now. Absolutely. And I've, I love that what you're doing with your work, because I've also been trying to do that in my own way with my work, just trying to create this version where people are free to be the best complex nuanced versions of themselves. And so what you just described was absolutely beautiful. What are some of your favorite outdoor adventures that you've done? Well, I mean, I really am a big fan of like rivers and lakes. Um, so, you know, it brings me like endless joy to share those experiences with other people. So I get, I mean, I'm so hooked on the awe that I experience myself in nature, but the awe that I get to witness in other people. So when I go on the American river in California and I've got, you know, eight or nine rafts full of people um, who've never rafted before. And, and I'm so present to how much they trust me in that experience to do something that they've never done before at a place they've never been with people they've never met before. Like they've said yes to so many different things before getting on that river. And so that really for me is, is the doing, but it's the being um, and awareness of, of those experiences with other people that are really, um, that those are, those are summit experiences in and of itself. Yeah. I've been thinking about my winter season, which was cut really short. And this is normally the time I'd be out on the big peaks, trying to ski all these big lines, but some of my most gratifying days of my year were skiing with other people and especially in a mentorship capacity where I've been trying to teach other women backcountry skills. So it is really gratifying when you go from that moment of just learning and discovering yourself to being able to see that light and that fire in other people's eyes. I want to ask what's a mistake or failure you've made on your path and what did you learn from it? Oh, wow. Um, well, I make mistakes every day. 
be clear. Like, like I think the most important thing is to recognize that like mistakes just happen. You know, they happen as a consequence of being human. The most important thing for me in every mistake has just been owning it and and really understanding like what's the lesson for me in this and and really taking whatever that lesson is to heart um you know especially if you find that you keep having the same mistakes show up over and over you know the common denominator honey is you <laughs> so if you have the same thing that keeps happening um, then, you know, I, I always, I ask myself like, wow, okay. You know, why is it that this, you know, this, this keeps showing up and usually there's an opportunity there for me to learn something about how to do things differently in the future. Um, and so I, I really see, you know, mistakes, not as just like, uh, you know, a singular moment, um, but, but really an opportunity that presents itself as a way to transform yourself. And, you know, sure, we can look at, you know, all kinds of things in our lives, like relationships or business decisions. But I look back on those things that may have occurred to me as a mistake at the time, and they actually turned out to be some pretty rad blessings. There's like this, this intersection of mistake and opportunity, you know, that that ends up giving you some really um, surprising outcomes that you didn't expect and can be just so appropriately disruptive that, you know, in a way that you need, you needed to be disrupted in how you did things or thought about things that, you know, can, can write your ship. Yeah. It's, this is something I've been working to change in my own mind is my own relationship with failure. And, and to, like you said, to call yourself out and to own your failures and to own your mistakes. I really, by asking that question, I'm trying to ask all my guests that so that we can reframe the narrative around failure and mistakes, because like you said, I believe that those present the greatest opportunities for growth and disruption. But we have to be able to destigmatize that. And I know for me as a woman, it's been it's been hard to do at times to be like, especially with mountains, like I'm gonna reach, I'm gonna change my mountain resume to include all the mountains that I've tried to climb and failed on. Because those are where I really learned. So anyway, it's just a question that I ask everyone. What else have you learned about leadership? Well, um, you know, I, I just I just kind of want to circle back to what you said about the mountain, because I don't know if you knew this, but we had a group of the outdoor Afro leaders do their own um, every year. They pick a trip that they want to do. And uh, a couple of years back, one of the trips that they decided to do and train for was um, a climb on Mount Kilimanjaro. And we had to change the way we talked about that experience, both before and, well, before, during, and after, um, because we weren't there to, to conquer anything. We were not there to um, even, like, summit, you know, the peak of that mountain um, in a traditional mindset way of thinking about climbing. We were there to be in relationship with that mountain. And we were there for people to find their summit and that everybody had a different summit. Some people summited, you know, at the, the, you know, the numerical peak of that mountain, but there are others who, you know, summited, you know, not far off base camp, you know, and that it was all okay. And it contributed to everyone feeling their own definition of success versus the 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 kind of success that's that's you know more typically portrayed in in climbing in particular um and that you know also included you know embracing the culture of the the folks who were helping them out up the hill and 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 engaging with them before the trip and then in a celebratory way after the trip um and so it was for us a huge learning experience because you know we're not um you know peak ascent we're not a peak ascent oriented uh, organization, but people wanted to do something that really represented pushing limits and, and, and exemplifying what leadership could look like in this way. And I just think they did such a great job, um, such an elegant um, engagement with that mountain that I, I just keep looking to and am and, and inspired by as a leader myself. One of the things you said there, I I remember we talked about this before, and you've really inspired and and 
caused me to sort of progress the way that I think about my relationship with mountaineering, because what I really love that you said is that we went there to conquer. Oh, sorry. My dog. (laughs) Your dog's saying hi. No, there's, there's people doing like yard work right now. She goes nuts. So, um, no problem. Yeah. Anyway, we'll do our best. Yeah. No. Um, what I love that you said is this language of conquering. And that's something that I've been really thinking about a lot in how we speak about the mountains and how we can start to decolonize our language and to hopefully that will have a reverberating effect on the rest of society. Because from our relationship with the mountains, our relationship in nature, just to be to continue life on this earth, we really need to decolonize a lot of these relationships. And so I have to give you credit for helping to progress my thinking on that, because that is such a smart thing you said. Oh, well, thank you. And, you know, I think that's the way we have to think about just nature all around. We look at all all the harm that's been caused to, um, you know, our public lands um, and, you know, especially in relationship with, um, you know, the human beings who've lived in some of these public lands um, from time immemorial, you know, that, 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 that mindset, you know, is not accidental, you know, it, it was a necessary mindset to help us, you know, detach our, our humanness, you know, from nature. Um, and, and when you do that, it makes it easier to cause harm in nature and, and cause harm and disruption between people in nature. Yeah. I wanted to share this moment that I especially remember with you from this group dinner we had in January 2019. And it was like right around the time I was planning to go to Everest. And it was just a little idea in my head. It wasn't, I hadn't put together the pitch deck and I was really struggling with self-doubt, particularly around the fundraising aspect, because to me, the amount of money I needed to raise seemed completely unfathomable and just out of my realm of context. And you really gave me this pep talk because I was like, I don't feel like I'm worth that amount of money. You gave me this pep talk. It helped me. It just really got the first step going. And I can't tell you how grateful I am for that conversation. But I wanted to ask, how can we impart that same confidence on others who have big dreams but are afraid of taking the first step? See, I'm trying to remember. What did I say? Like, I don't remember. It was with you and Chris and Kirsten. Okay. Okay. Well, I will say this. This is why what I've been consistent about, and that is, you know, money is just, you know, it's just energy, you know. And you know, when you're asking for something that you believe in, you know, it's that's the thing. It's not about you. And I think that for myself, for Outdoor Afro, like I am. I am asking someone to contribute to something that I believe in and that I know that has a tremendous impact and it's not personal, you know, I'm not, you know, asking someone to, you know, um, you know, buy me a pair of shoes or, you know, take me out to lunch necessarily. Um, but it's really about something bigger that I'm being called for that I get to advocate for. And, and it's really an honor to do that. And, and there's really, when you think about the causes that we love and the things that we get to advocate for, there's no limit to what you'll ask for to be in support of making those dreams come true or that vision come true. And, um, you know, and, th- and that is the time, I believe, to st- step out of the, the kind of the vanity and the narcissism about it, that it's personal, but it's really much bigger than, than, than you as a person. And that it makes that ask, I believe, always a lot more compelling. Um, and I'm so glad that you, you, you did that because what, you, what you've accomplished was absolutely worth it. And you were worth being the one to carry that message forward and that you embrace that out of the conversation we had and that you built on it and made it your own um, is tremendously inspiring. And I'm just really, really proud of you for everything you've accomplished. Likewise, likewise. I just, I can't remember exactly. I think it was just something along those lines of being able to ask for the money. And it was just so hard for me to get over my own self-sabotaging. And in my heart, I knew it was what I wanted to do, but I have a hard time trusting my intuition. So how did you learn to trust your intuition? Well, I think climbing was a huge, um, 
lesson for me. You know, I remember that I was absolutely on the side of this mountain. I think I told you about this, um, you know, years ago, and I often cited it that, you know, I was like starfished on the side of this mountain and I couldn't, you know, see it was, you know, after dusk and the sun had disappeared on the other side and we were going to be camping that night um, at the summit with my little mountaineering group. And, you know, I was doing something I'd never done before. I'd never been responsible for carrying my body weight up the side of a mountain. And I didn't think I could do that. And that mountain taught me that, yes, you can do that. If you dig in, you can do that. If you just, and and I, I had, you know, a moment of breakdown and I had you know, all the fear and all the self-doubt. And my mountaineering guide, he said to me very plainly the magic words that I still refer to. And he said, Rue, trust your feet. And I've still been trusting my feet. I've still, I've still had to dig in and, and, you know, find a way, you know, when there wasn't a way. Um, I felt or could see. And that I believe is the faith walk that nature uh, allows us a chance to experience in those, in those, you know, very intense physical encounters that we can have. And that was the lesson for a lifetime. Yeah. I, when I think about those places where I feel really confident and I feel like I'm living in my truth, they're always on the mountain. Usually it's like waking up in the middle of the night for summit day because there's just something about that kind of scenario that gives me a lot of energy and confidence. But it's hard because sometimes I feel like when I'm not in that environment, it's easy for me to lose that feeling. And so that story you just brought up is a great visualization. And I think having those places we can go back to in our mind's eye can really help us reset when we need that clarity. You're a mom to three children. How has being a mother made you a stronger leader and what qualities of parenting translate to leadership? Well, I think that the, the, the road of parenting has absolutely been a huge inspiration for my work. You know, like there's no, there are very few things that give you that real time um, opportunity of selflessness in practice. Like you really do, like I didn't understand what it meant to actually put yourself or put someone else before you. You know, I had friendships. Uh, Of course, your relationship with your parents is often, you know, very special. But like I really put, you know, not just my kids first, but I would actually think about like all the ways that I would save their lives. (laughs) Like I would have these crazy you know, fantasies about like if the bear came or, you know, or if the car, you know, suddenly caught on fire, like what I, what, you know, daring rescue I would do. I mean, so it's so vivid the ways that you would, you know, not only put your kids first, but, but think about how, you know, in the face of danger or any, any bad thing, you know, that you would be so ready to spring into action. Um, But I think that, you know, my kids have also been a really important lesson in nature for me. I've got a chance to experience so much about the outdoors and, and, and experiences camping, for instance, with my kids and, and just even the ways that we got closer through those experiences. um, The the things that my kids would open up and talk to me about, you know, when we'd be all hunkered down in our tent, you know, under, or, or just be on a walk outside under the stars that I wasn't, you know, able to access, um, in our busy, you know, daily lives. So my kids and I, I feel absolutely got closer, um, through our connections with nature, um, experience with one another. Yeah. I feel like so often mothering and parenting is people try to present that as something that's not associated with leadership, but I think all those things you said, the ability to listen closely and to be reconnected and just all of those things, I think really makes, makes strong leaders. So yeah, I think that's really cool. I wanted to ask you, I saw this photo of you and Oprah. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? That looked so rad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just, I got a call from her producers. Um, 
out of the blue and they wanted to um, have Oprah connect in with a local not-for-profit organization that um, was in close proximity to wherever she, you know, was doing her tour. And I knew she was going to be coming to San Francisco, but I thought, you know, I didn't think anything <laughs> about being in connection with her. Um, going to that event myself was pretty much out of my price range. So um, I was really surprised to get a call from the producer who was like, not even willing to say like who the event was for that they wanted to do. Like they referred to her as the boss. And, and, and then when I finally figured it out, they were like, well, you know, you can't say anything to anybody um, and you have to you know keep this totally under wraps. And uh, that was, that was, you know, not hard to do. Um, but they, said that they were willing to do a hike with me. And I proposed a park in my hometown that was really special to me. Um, and that also um, is a place where redwoods grow and redwoods are my favorite trees. And there's a story about, you know, regeneration and redwoods and why and how they grow so tall that was so important to share. And, um, and they did just such a great job of, of working with me to create what I felt was an authentic outdoor Afro event. So um, yeah, it was surreal to actually be hiking in a small group with Oprah Winfrey herself in my hometown, um, among the redwoods, my favorite trees that are also favorite trees of hers. Um, she has property in Santa Barbara area that has a bunch of redwoods. And, and so she really got at the heart level what this work was all about. And, you know, it was, it happened right before COVID-19. So, you know, I think I've still, I'm, I, I'm still not quite back in my body after that experience because it was one of those career summits um, that I'll never forget. And I'm so thankful and I feel tremendously honored and humble that, that she said yes to Outdoor Afro too. And that's incredible. Yeah. So yeah, that's how it happened. Still, still, you know, marveling um so over is, it all. It, is it on tv or is it available for us to see some of the media from that you know i have some still photographs and and her folks did put together like a a, a little short clip that they showed at the actual event the next day and um and then we filmed some of that and then she had me stand up in front of like, you know, the 16,000 people that were there and, you know, and she kept like referring to brew and outdoor Afro, like, so it was, it was, a, and then our news, um, our local news, uh, they, they covered it. And so I've got footage from, from that as well. So yeah, I can absolutely share that with you. So as you've gone along your career, have you had bullies or naysayers? Oh Yeah. Constantly. I mean, you know, it, it just comes with the territory. And, you know, I was bullied as a young person. Um, you know, I had, as you as you heard, a very unique upbringing that wasn't always understood. And it, it made my family definitely more on the eclectic side of things. And so I absolutely got feedback about that, you know, you know, having those kind of country ways from time to time. Um, and then, you know, just my outgoingness, I think, has been, you know, not always well received or understood or, you know, and that's why being, you know, in the role that I'm in right now and doing Outdoor Afro is so special because, you know, all those things that that are like the ABCs of me that may have been not understood um, are absolutely understood now, you know, are absolutely uh, a, a core integral part of what makes Outdoor Afro what it is. Um, you know, so again, I think it's, I think that the, the bullying piece, there's a, just like with the mistakes that we talked about earlier, there's a lesson in there for us. Um, and, and sometimes that lesson is as simple as fortitude. Um, but, uh, but sometimes that lesson has more to do with, you know, really taking ownership over those parts that that maybe we are and 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 recognizing that it's 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 something to be celebrated and not and not ridiculed necessarily yeah that's a nice way it's always something i struggle with dealing with of 
how I can take those parts that people are critical of or what people pick apart and make sure I don't lose my identity in that because it's really easy to internalize the those comments and the bullies, the language, and to think that it's really a true reflection and then to like alter yourself. And so I appreciate you sharing your perspective on that. Yeah. And also, you know, especially on social media, you know, like people who are these, like, I don't know, like, you know, um, I don't know, text bullies or comment section bullies, you know, I don't even read that stuff because, you know, again, these are folks, they're all in the vanity metrics world to us, you know? And so, you know, if you detach from, you know, the numbers of people who like something or follow something, you know, and also attach, you know, yourself from those people who have negative things to say, I think we're much better off. Um, yeah. Because it doesn't, it's, it's so easy for people to say and do things now in ways that we just never, we never had that um, ease um, in, in doing that before. And I think that when you really get people in a face-to-face scenario, they would never say those things. They would never do those things, you know? So I just, it's just not even real to me. Yeah. Well, thanks for weighing in on that. I appreciate that perspective. I need to get better at being disciplined about not reading the comments because it (laughs) is just not a good place to go. No. No. (laughs) Now I wanted to have you talk to me about your activism and specifically what roles do outdoor adventurers have to play in activism, whether it's on the nonprofit side or politically? Yeah, I think our, our, our role in advocacy is so important because, you know, as someone who is a fan of community and outdoor recreation, it's so important for us to be opening a door of understanding about, you know, why do we, you know, for instance, have a trail in this place? Or how is this part created? Um, and how can we, you know, through our relationship with these places, uh, learn to take better care of them? Um, so one of the things that's been very important to me is that people develop relationships with spaces before we introduce the activism or stewardship piece. And I'll give you an example. When I see like, you know, kids, especially if there are kids of color who are out like picking up cigarette butts off of a beach or, you know, doing some, you know, trash pickup on a trail. My first question is, have they ever played here or is their first engagement you know, to do work. So it's really important that in my work that we're actually helping people to develop a relationship with the place before we're asking them, you know, to do something, to have a job, to vote, um, to, you know, do any kind of action. Because we know that, you know, I do what I do and you do what you do because we have a relationship with those places. You know, we, we, we know what it's like to, you know, put our feet, you know, um, in, in our bare feet into that, that warm sand, you know, we know what it's like to, you know, um, enjoy the trails and the wildlife, you know, that are, you know, not too disturbed by humans. And, you know, and we, and we want to continue to have those experiences and we want those experiences to be held, had by, by more people, you know, for the benefit of people and nature. Um, but it's only through those experiences, those touches that happen over a lifetime, do you actually get, I believe, to a place where you can do that advocacy from a, a really authentic um, lived experience. So I really think that, it, that, that activism, you know, is an important aspect of a total relationship with nature and not transactional, you know, in the same way that you wouldn't, you know, get married to somebody by just having a one-time coffee date, you know, so too, is it true that you don't become an activist for nature by just, you know, a weekend cleanup experience. Um, So we really want to be thinking long game all the time about how we connect people to, to their activism, you know, um, instincts uh, through relationships. Yeah. That's really interesting what you said, because I also find at times the activism work to be quite draining. Yeah. It's, 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 it can be gratifying, but there are times that you show up and it can suck the life out of you. Yeah. And I don't mean to, I mean, I try sometimes to glamorize it on social media because I want to sandbag people into showing up to those government meetings. (laughs) Yeah. 
that is like hard energy sucking work. And so I feel like my time in the mountains, it really gives me this resiliency and it builds up my energy level. So I can go back into that situation of doing the cleanup or doing the public comments or doing the marches, which again, are not always that fun. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I think that's what you, what you hit on is, is really important. Yeah. So I just think that that's part of why what you do is so important, you know, is like you're, you know, you're showcasing like the engagement with those places and the activism, you know? And so I think these are, it's all the same conversation, you know, and, and, you know, we've got to get people in relationship with these places that help them to care about them and, and take action. Yeah, we really need to decrease the barriers of entry to the outdoors before we can expect people to be strong advocates for these places. Because like you said, if someone's only experience is like doing a beach cleanup and they've never got to have that enjoyment and that life-giving energy given back to them, how can we expect? Absolutely. Yeah, that they're going to vote the environment or be a climate voter. Yeah. And and quite frankly, a lot of people underestimate just how much communities of color care already about these things. You know, sometimes we lead with this assumption that, you know, that black people don't care about, you know, uh, environmental, environmental policies. And that could, couldn't be farther from the truth that, you know, people absolutely care about their communities and they want fresh air and they want clean water and they want green spaces close to home. But if, but so I think that we also have to, work from an asset-based assumption about what people care about and then really build on what people already are doing. And then that, you know, then that feels less of a, like a pull, you know, when, when you're really um, stepping into people's existing values. Talk to me about the importance of having black leadership in outdoor Afro and in the greater outdoor industry. Well, I think it's so critical because, you know, leadership is where decisions are made. And it's where you really see change versus transactions. I think that, you know, the traditional environmental movement has been really stuck on, you know, this narrative of we take the kids from the hoods to the woods. And then they have some kind of like evangelical experience that makes them a conservation steward after that weekend in the mountains. And I'm like, no, it doesn't happen that way. You know, that kids are part of communities and busy working families that, you know, are making, you know, um, decisions every day, you know, for their own personal sustainability. And so how do we, you know, work with the leadership that already exists in communities, such as moms and dads and, you know, um, professionals and people who are, you know, um, uh, in leadership in their churches and sororities and, and fraternities. And so Outdoor Afro really represents that leadership. And it's really for us about doing like what my dad and my mom did for me. And that's being outdoor leaders that I could look up to in my own home. And so Outdoor Afro is doing just that. We are helping to restore outdoor leadership back to the home that, you know, a kid has to sign up for a program led by people outside of their community in order to connect with nature is asinine to me. So how might it be that we, we then just empower everyday folks um, you know, to feel confident in leading others in nature. And that's what outdoor Afro leaders are. They're all like, I mean, architects, attorneys, um, medical professionals, teachers, grandparents, military vets. I mean, they come from so many professional backgrounds, but they all have this fire in their belly to connect people to nature. And so we're really disrupting this idea that you have to be some kind of, you know, traditionally trained um, in the outdoors or outdoor recreation in order to be competent in your leadership. My dad would have never called himself a conservationist, but he absolutely was. So um, there's a bit of rebrand that's also happening with our leadership as well about, you know, who gets to be, um, you know, who gets to, who gets to, to tell the narrative, you know, uh, and, and that's really important to, to do in order to sh- the narrative is to have people in leadership. And I think you really hit the nail on the head in one of the bigger problems or really opportunities for transformation in the outdoor industry is that leadership position. Because 
there's just in that traditional model where, you know, like you were saying, the taking the kids from the hood to the woods, there's that white saviorism element too that's so deeply problematic. And it's usually white men in that position. And so I really appreciate what you're doing to disrupt that. Yeah. What does authentic allyship look like to you? I think nothing happens faster than the speed of relationships. And, you know, when people say they're allies, I really want to know, are we friends first? Mm. If I know that you're my friend, that means that, you know, with any friendship that's valuable to me, it's one that's nurtured. It's informed by, you know, care and concern and being there for you for the, you know, for the fun times, but also when the chips are down. And so I think that, you know, allyship is not like, you know, about putting out fires, you know, or, um, but it's, it's about, you know, sharing your resources, you know, and if you've got some power and privilege that you can, you know, share, you know, in a, in a time when it matters, um, you know, that's, that's, I think, and that's informed by being in relationship versus your own sense of, um, how you want to center yourself because sometimes people do things in community and they, they center themselves. It's like, look at me, look how cool I am, look kind of ally I am, you know? And I think that it's really important that if people want to be allies, that they do so in a way that's really informed by the values and the relationships that they have or want to cultivate with the community, because that way it will be authentic and it, and, and it will be, um, understood. Thank you so much for your time today, Rue. I really appreciate you sitting down with me to chat. Oh, I am so, I just hope we can keep talking. I just think we just touched the surface. Of, I agree. Of so many things that I know that you and I value and I just can't wait to reconnect with you, whether it be on Capitol Hill or elsewhere. Again, I just think we have a lot more work to do. Likewise. All right. I will hopefully see you in real life soon. Have a great rest of your day. And thank you so much. I'm so grateful for your time today. Likewise. You take good care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. I I trust the movement. I negate the chaos. Uplift the negative. I'll show up at the table again and again and again. I'll close my mouth and learn to listen. Special thanks to Avery Sandak for his help with the audio on today's episode, to my partner Rob Lee for being extra quiet while I'm recording in the house today, and to Rising Appalachia for graciously providing the music for today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate and review it so other people can find it. Until next time.